First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in the industry. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And so we got a very special guest this week. We're very excited. Uh, a listener recommended, a guest on this podcast recommended. Multiple people have told us he's their favorite left YouTuber. He's uh, very entertaining, very smart, and we're so thrilled to be joined by the YouTuber Do Not Eat. Real name Justin is here today. Hi, thanks for having me on the pod. Thank you. And uh, I guess for people who are not familiar with what you do, you're a YouTube City Skylines, excuse me, a YouTube City Skylines Let's Player who uh, uses that to explain different concepts in um, housing issues. Would that be a fair description or how would you describe it? I, I, I use City Skylines, you know, to do visuals, to explain sort of urban policy, history, um, to, you know, talk about transportation, land use issues from more of a generally left wing perspective than you know, especially like mainstream urbanists do. Uh, so, yeah, that's me. And I throw in some uh, uh, funnies in there, too. But City Skylines, like, the politics of the game, or maybe the politics of Sin City, Sim City, excuse me, are, if you were to analyze the politics, you would probably say it's kind of a neoliberal view of city management. So I guess my question is, are you using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house? Uh... Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's that's probably about accurate. I mean, I have to turn off about half to three quarters of the gameplay in order to, <laughs> you know, tell the stories I want to tell, you know. Um, it's, it's not like the game is going to let you, you know, simulate stuff in any way other than what it wants to do unless you're you're willing to uh, go over this that, st that their Steam workshop and download five million mods. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I will say the most realistic part of SimCity is when I um, demolish entire blocks of houses and am completely indifferent to all of the lives <laughs> I am destroying. <laughs> um, but so we, we had you here today and you suggested uh, we do an episode about the Irving family um, in Canada, who uh, is very fascinating. I, I learned about them on, on your recommendation and we'll get into them in, in just a second. But I guess first, before we, we go any farther, we should mention up top that it's very hard to do this kind of comedy podcast uh, when you've lost a friend. Yeah. A giant of the podcast world uh, has been taken from us. Um, so as of Saturday, uh, August 10th, Jeffrey Epstein was found dead of an apparent suicide, strangled in his prison cell. And uh, Okay, so uh, who do you think did it? I just think it's a shame we're not going to get the SNL cold open of uh, Kate McKinnon as Hillary strangling him with fiber wire, then saying, <laughs> live from New York, it's Saturday night. Well, I mean, it has to be someone who is actually capable of getting the job done. Yeah. Which basically eliminates 99% of like public figures who you think would do it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like Wexner. Yeah. Or it's like, uh, I don't know. Maybe Mike Pence did it. <laughs> <laughs> Calling in a favor for the for the VP spot. I don't know. It's just interesting where it's like, okay, so Ep Jeffrey Epstein's dead now, and then um, 
so that's it, right? Like the uh, all of the loose ends are just going to be forgotten about. All the money people gave to Jeff Ep- Epstein, all the uh, <laughs> uh, Glenn and Eva Dubin uh, being accused in those documents of uh, trafficking children and being involved with him. It's just something where there were some listener requests to like revisit it and do another episode already. And I think I'm kind of like, I just want to see how this settles. Because what I'm most curious about is what happens a year from now, you know? Like a year from now, is it uh, just kind of people talking about either Epstein and Trump or Epstein and Clinton and never both? And, uh, you know, Glenn and Eva Dubin are back in high society. Uh, You know, Leon Black is not uh talked about in connection with this anymore like does this all just disappear that would be when i would want to follow up on it yeah like three days ago we were saying like okay let's you know wait we've got the documents now but so much more is going to come out in the discovery process of the trial <laughs> but there's, uh, we there's plenty of civil court cases that are still going forward mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But my guess so is that a lot of those stay in be... the background for quite some time I yeah think. But this is the thing is like we have such information overload that, you know, the day before Epstein got whacked, the 2000 pages come out. And then in these 2000 pages, as we mentioned, Glenn Dubin is a hedge fund billionaire and he's alleged that he raped a child or Virginia Roberts when she was a child. It's alleged in there. But we have such information overload in the society that it's like if pages and pages just come out showing that, you know, say 20 or 100 billionaires are all part of some giant pedophile conspiracy theory or conspiracy, I should say, like, unless there's any actual, let's say, prosecution of them, it's just the kind of thing that's going to disappear, where, you know, eventually the New York Times will start me- stop mentioning it. Eventually, you know, it'll just be her word against theirs if there's not, like, actual, say, video evidence or whatever else the case is. I'll also say, so we're recording this on Sunday. So it's uh, and within the last 24 hours... The Atlantic released three articles about how it was definitely a suicide. So I think if you want to like get to the bottom of this, you should look into who owns the Atlantic and maybe or maybe some of the connections of the editors. Yeah, mysteriously, all of those articles were published two hours before they found the body. (laughs) I'm just going to say, I think all the civil cases will go ahead. They'll sue as a state for an insultingly low amount. Yeah, every victim's gonna get forty five dollars cash and a twenty dollar <laughs> Wawa gift card. <laughs> it, no. It's gonna be dumb, and they'll have to sign like an NDA. Almost everything. certainly. Yeah. But it is something where I guess it is very uh, disturbing, and um, it just doesn't make any sense to me because Southern District of New York, even even if you're like, let's follow cold hard incentives here, Southern District of New York, where the prosecutors against Epstein. This is going to be the media case of the century. Any prosecutor on this makes their career, you know? Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of it. They have every single incentive to keep Jeffrey Epstein alive. And three weeks before this, he either was attacked or tried to kill himself. So they knew something was going on. And it just doesn't make sense to me where Southern District of New York didn't just recruit podcasters to watch him <laughs> at all times. You know, like I would have been willing to sign the visitor logs and sit in the jail for three hours, you know, twice <laughs> a week. And then we just get enough, you know, hundreds of Brooklyn podcasters. We'll make sure he gets to your trial. Yeah, you so, got enough people to cover three shifts easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you could do that with Crispin, Mullen. Yeah. And the present company. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll just have a punch card system. Yeah. Sign in, sign out. 
Just be like, this I'll do job. it. It's a job guarantee for, for podcasters. I'll do it for free, but the condition is you can't open my bag on the way into the facility <laughs> because I, it has something in there that I require to stay awake. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is just something where I just don't really understand. Like, again, the of course, the Occam's razor explanation is always incompetence, you know? Like, we shouldn't underestimate that. Uh, just people fucked up or you know whoever on their shift wasn't watching and something happened but it's just so bizarre where again the incentives at least for the southern district of new york were to treat this guy like a vip because it was the case of the century but you know maybe they did intentionally allow something to happen because somebody talked to them or maybe you know i think it was like something happened through the guards i don't think the southern district right but much to do with it what but i'm saying like they they are prosecutors they know prison conditions they know what mcc in manhattan is like Mm -hmm. you know they managed to keep el chapo alive to the trial so it's like well the 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 worry with el chapo was just keeping him in the building right now that when he died he wasn't actually under suicide watch Right, they took him off suicide watch within off. like a week. Yeah, yeah, but didn't the, tell the, anyone. The, the decision to do that was dubious. Right. Yeah, and like some guard who was supposed to be watching him wasn't, of course, watching him at that. I think time. I think the Southern District's interest in Epstein wasn't probably as great or manageable as the interests of the accused. Mm-hmm. In this case, I just want to say congratulations to the family of the guard who wasn't watching. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Mr. Epstein, I'm just going to leave this coil of rope here, and I'm going to go use the restroom. I'll be back in a minute. Oh, there's nothing to tie it sheets. to. Here's, here's, a, here's, here's some more bed sheets. Yeah, here's yeah. some more bed sheets. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a diagram showing how to tie a noose. <laughs> uh, I would like to congratulate that guard's children on their full-ride scholarship to Harvard University, <laughs> their admission to the Kennedy School of Government. Um. But yeah, no, and so we're going to release, by the end of this week, we're going to release a a Patreon episode on Glenn and Eva Dubin, who we've mentioned here, um, because uh, they were, of course, in these 2000 Virginia Roberts pages, Glenn Dubin was accused of rape, and Eva Dubin has been accused of trafficking children for Epstein. And it is just something where, you know, we're going to do the episode, and we'll see if these people get away with it. Because to me, that's always the big question, is the billionaires. Uh, like, there's multi-millionaires too, but just the actual billionaires, the actual 2,000 most powerful people in society. And, you know, you have at least three who are directly linked to this guy, either financially or through accusations. And you have to imagine just the social circles they run in, more people than that were aware. And... uh it is just something where it, it disturbs me the possibility that he's dead. Now it's all just hearsay and everything goes back to normal. Um, but so we'll, we'll see what happens with that story. Uh, check out our Patreon episode later this week for a bit of follow-up on Glenn and Eva Dubin and just a couple of the billionaires who are linked to Epstein and uh, what all they have been up to. Uh, so I wanted to transition to the Irvings, uh, the subject of this episode, and... Um, uh, Justin, I know you were the one who suggested the Irvings to us, and it was very fascinating to do research about them, but I just wanted to start by asking you, what made you interested in the Irving family? So I, I was interested from the, the first time I went to uh, this uh, this place no one knows about, right? It turns out if you keep driving up Interstate 95, you get to a place called Banger in Maine. Mm-hmm. I hardly knew her. Uh, <laughs> and then you take a road called the Airline Oops. across Maine, 
and then you cross the border. And it turns out what's around Maine isn't like a void, despite what it says on maps. You go to New Brunswick, which is where, which is the province of Canada, which is entirely controlled by this one group of companies, the Irving Group of Companies. They own, they own the gas stations, they own the construction companies, they own the lumber companies, they own, they own housing, they own all the, uh, they already said gas station. You did. They own all the newspapers. Um, it's absurd. Uh, one in ten people in this province work for this one group of companies, and it's it's the most incredible corporate feudalism that you never would expect would happen in the first world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I think Americans or some of them, maybe on the liberal or even left side, have this view of Canada as like this kind of comparatively social democratic paradise to the United States. And then you learn about the province of New Brunswick, which is just basically a giant company town right on the border with Maine. And it's all controlled by the Irving family. I mean, you, you, we're getting harsh on them, but we should remember that they do keep the creature from it out of Canada. And that's mostly how they rose to power. We'll get to that later. Um <laughs> So I guess just to kind of start for an introduction, I well, I guess the first absolute thing I would say is if you are listening to this podcast and you are living in New Brunswick, Canada, I would recommend you hit the pause button and immediately get a cancer screen uh, <laughs> because <laughs> New Brunswick, Canada, uh, in addition to everything else the Irvings are doing there, they've been spraying a ton of uh, glyphosate, which you might be familiar with is the Roundup herbicide, um, just from... Uh, uh, this article here, uh, glyphosate is the world's most widely used herbicide and is sprayed heavily in New Brunswick to encourage the growth of softwood trees, which are coveted by the pulp and paper industry. It is also linked to destroying wildlife and increasingly cancer. And it just so happens that New Brunswick has the second highest rate of new cancers in all of the Canadian provinces. Wait, a, a chemical designed to kill life is linked with cancer? Yes. Yes. It's it's doing its um, job. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing in SimCity 3000 prepared me for this development. <laughs> I mean, this is like Irving Irving Co is like if you're playing SimCity and like suddenly there's a little development of industrial zone that you didn't create and then you tried to bulldoze them and nothing happens though. And then there's suddenly they just have an advisor in your little tab. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't shut them off. I do imagine the Irving's uh, PR people had to encourage them to stop referring to the population of New Brunswick as weeds. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it is just interesting where, again, this Canadian province right on the border with uh, the U.S. state of Maine. And uh, there's a fascinating article in Le Monde. Uh, they've uh, interviewed Don Bowser, an expert on political corruption. He says there is less transparency and public consultation in New Brunswick than in Kurdistan, Guatemala, or Sierra Leone. Uh, basically, the citizens of this province cannot get information on the taxes and license fees that the biggest enterprise in their province pays or how much public aid it receives. Uh, it just so happens that New Brunswick's current premier, a guy named Blaine Higgs, is the is a former Irving Group executive who worked in the oil sector for more than 30 years. Uh, and so, you know, it is just something where they just blatantly own the actual government of New Brunswick. And uh, like you mentioned, they uh, employ anywhere from 8 to 12 percent of the population 
even more in the city of St. John. In the St. John in the city of St. John is like one out of four. <laughs> and that's not even the people who like depend on the Irvin business to, you know, like sell whatever uh, goods to actual people who are employed by the Irving. So the knock-on effects are such to the point where this is, again, just a Canadian province controlled by one family in an absolutely futile manner. (laughs) And they pay the least in the developed world for insulin. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, so it just highlights that you you can have great social democracy uh, in conjunction with corruption. Yeah, win some, you lose some. (laughs) No, I mean, it's really, like, I think I think there's an idea in the left that like if you, the more the more social democratic reforms and democratic socialism even that you get the less corrupt uh, government will necessarily also get. You need Irving in order to have thirty dollar insulin. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Worth it. Though we have Irving in the United States. Yes. As but, far oh, as we don't have enough, we don't have here. enough yet. Don't have enough Irving. Yeah. yeah. We have what? The, oh, you said there were some gas stations there, earlier. There's a gas in... station as far south as Waterbury, Connecticut. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well. They also, so the Irvings are the sixth largest landowner in the United States, and that's primarily because they have like 1.25 million acres of forest in the state of Maine. So as far as the U.S. goes, the state of Maine is their biggest presence. So we should look up insulin prices in the state of Maine just to see if they're cheaper than the rest of the United States. I mean, before you criticize that, just remember it's been over two decades since Tim Curry ate any children in Maine. (laughs) And uh, that's in no small part due to the work of the Irvings. But I guess just like from this article in the Dominion, um, the... To give an overview of what's informally called the Irving Group of Companies, because they have more than 200 subsidiaries, and this is all privately held by the Irving family, so it's very hard to get information about this. These are not publicly traded companies, but they include, uh, according to the Dominion, among other things, uh, oil speculation, refining and shipping, gas stations, food products, massive land holdings, we mentioned the forestry, pulp and paper, uh, hardware stores, um, home building but significantly they uh own all three english language daily newspapers in new brunswick uh apparently the only daily newspaper they don't own is uh in french but they are the ones who publish it uh they own a lot of radio stations uh they own like most of the weeklies as well so it is new brunswick is most is almost all english speaking right I, I think, think so. there's like a split. It, it borders Quebec, so you know there are some. There's some bleed over. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like uh, near, they have they have a hand in almost all levels of the news there. Yeah, right. Like according to Le Monde, essentially in um there there've been so the oil refinery in Saint John is the largest oil refinery in Canada. They do a hundred some thousand barrels a day, uh, and it's like the main um let's say employer in the town yeah but there have been uh repeated fires and explosions there like most recently uh, or i'm not sure if there's been a more recent one but in autumn 2018 there was an explosion that ki- at the saint john refinery that killed four people um and according to Le Monde, a doctor doubted the accuracy of the company's statement and the impartiality of new brunswick media coverage so it's like unsurprisingly you know um when bad things happen at their properties, their media properties tend to report on them in a favorable light if they report on them at all. You know, I was watching Chernobyl, the HBO show recently, and I am just so glad that we uh, don't have a a Soviet system that just blatantly covers up 
massive environmental problems and massive death and just don't have that kind of corruption in the Western world. I, I mean, when my local refinery blew up a couple of weeks ago, um, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, obviously there was massive media coverage and, you know, there was definitely punishment and, you know, there, there, there was repercussions and no, none of this stuff happened. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, did, was there actually a refinery? Explosion. Uh, yeah, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery exploded uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was the second time it exploded that month. Hmm. Uh, but this time it was in the, uh, yeah, it's just something you sort of deal with in Philadelphia. Like the, the refinery blows up every once in a while, you know, it's like whatever. Uh, this time it could have been really bad because it was a hydrogen fluoride tank. What that blew up. Oh, that's and, some fun stuff. Oh, yeah. If that had blown up and they hadn't emptied it in time, there would have been a cloud of hydrogen fluoride would have just swept over south philadelphia and turned everyone into goo if i can uh quote uh one of the tas from uh a chemistry class i took um hydrogen fluoride is characterized by its uh unique property where it eats your bones and you die slowly yes i'm just imagining lane from madman taking off his glasses in a very dramatic fashion when he hears that <laughs> news <laughs> someone should ask him what he thinks about about epstein since he's 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 probably he's portrayed hanging enough that he's almost an expert on the topic. Um, oh, and just to mention the uh, glyphosite article quote that came from the National Observer. So sorry for not citing it earlier. But I, I guess and you were also telling us, Justin, some story about you were up there or you were saying there was another explosion at the same refinery in St. John. And the well, you were saying when nobody got hurt, the yeah. papers covered it in a particular way. Yeah, the papers covered it in a particular way. They said, um. You know, there's a big picture of the fireball in the uh, refinery uh, on the front page. And then the headline said, it's a miracle, <laughs> you know, because because uh, no one got hurt. So obviously there's no other repercussions <laughs> that could possibly happen from a giant fireball happening in the refinery other than, you know, no one immediately getting hurt. You know, as we all know, once the fire stops, there's no other problems whatsoever. No, yeah, yeah, it's done. Yeah, yeah no. it's over. Yeah. Right, but so it's interesting where essentially, like you know, they some the Irvings sometimes receive coverage from national media in Canada. That's you know, let's say more um, critical. But local paper, there's absolutely no incentive to do any investigative journalism of them at all because you'll lose your job, which has happened to multiple people. I, it's it's interesting since they own all the newspapers, right? I, the oil industry in in general sort of gets away with half truths and misdirection and euphemisms all the time right mm -hmm. so like british petroleum renamed themselves beyond petroleum to sound like they were a green company right or or like exxon mobil advertised we spent 340 million dollars last year on renewable energy oh yeah their budgets those. in like the trillions right you know and it's like they're all trying to Jump seem change. progressive while you know they're just selling oil right that, that was my favorite but marketing I, campaign was right after the Deepwater horizon yeah. all that there were all those like bp and exxon commercials where they just had molecules in the background and then people in lab coats saying that they were building a better future yeah. so if you go to an irving gas station right mm -hmm. they've done away with you know all the euphemisms right uh and they just write on the side of the gas pump irving clean gasoline <laughs> 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 Vern's clean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is the type of gasoline that the doesn't have CO2, I guess. <laughs> I'm just imagining George Orwell Hank Hill direction. <laughs> 
I'm just imagining George Orwell hearing uh, Beyond Petroleum and thanking God that he is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, like, uh, before we get into this family here, we should just mention one more thing with regards to New Brunswick. We mentioned they're the sixth largest landowner in uh, the U.S. because of these massive acres of forest they own in Maine. Uh, they also, unsurprisingly, own even more land in New Brunswick. I believe they own something near two million, a little more than two million acres. Uh, but they, in addition to the land they just straight up own, according to Lamond, they also have. Um, the New Brunswick government also trusts them with managing their public forests. And according to Lamond, um, they are constantly downloading the, or downgrading the requirements for maintenance of these forests. Uh, they say the uh, most recent forest management manual for New Brunswick crowns lands reduces the size of buffer zones between forests and habitable areas, authorizes more clear cutting, increases scheduled production volume, and cuts protected areas from 31% to 22%. Uh, and the Uh, legislation has effectively created a free trade zone for the family the natural resources department requirements cannot be modified without their agreement (laughs) so i mean like you know it it is just kind of funny where again you know canada our harmless northern neighbor and you just don't imagine this kind of corruption outside of you know the most uh rachel maddow talking point about uh moscow um government kind of thing you know just like Kicking the snowmobile into high gear towards global warming. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they only have like most. I think most leftists have little to no knowledge, honestly, about Canadian politics. Right. Yeah. And they only know about like, well, they've got a great healthcare system, and well, they do. And they also have incredible corruptions at the highest levels, just like we yes. do, actually. Right. But so I guess like, and I, uh, one other thing I do want to mention before we get to the Irving family themselves is uh, essentially the role of the uh, Saudi war machine in their uh, massively profitable empire. Uh, we've been mentioning this oil refinery um, in St. John. So it mostly currently processes Saudi Arabian crude oil. And of course, you might be familiar with Saudi Arabia carrying out a genocide in uh, Yemen as uh, we speak. It's a brand new genocide. We didn't point it out a year ago (laughs) on this podcast as it continued to get worse up to this day. Yeah. So according to tankertracker.com, they tracked 16 million barrels of Saudi crude going from um, Saudi Arabia just in March to August 2019. And this is after Saudi Arabia threatened to do 9-11 to Canada on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So it is nice that they can settle their differences. Um, And, you know, so, of course, there's this, uh, again, something that uh, Americans might be familiar with our arms deal with Saudi Arabia. But there is also a a Canadian arms deal with Saudi Arabia for something like 12 billion. I believe they're, they're sending, you know. Uh, armored personnel carriers and other light vehicles. Mounties. <laughs> yeah. Genocide mounties. Yeah. Uh, according to uh, nbmediacoop.org, uh, uh, Saudi Aramco, the, uh, uh, the state-owned Saudi Arabian oil company, their largest customer is Irving Oil. And so it is just something where, oh, sorry, it was a 15 billion Canadian uh, arms deal that uh, the current government uh, went ahead with, where they mainly send the weaponized military vehicles, the light armored vehicles. Um, so it is just something where they send them, you know, 15 billion worth of arms. So you're and- not going to be using this to blow up children, are you? Wink, wink. <laughs> sending a, sending a, a boatload of armed assault mooses. <laughs> <laughs> 
we got we got light we got light elk and heavy mooses. We got <laughs> we got bears, loonies. <laughs> yeah, we got beavers with landmines on the back. <laughs> now look, you can sell them serp, but you ca- you got to stop selling them cluster serp. <laughs> it's, it's not okay if it breaks into multiple pieces and drowns entire region. So, but yeah, so it is just something. It'll take that Boston molasses spill to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> it is just something where, you know, uh, according to um, this uh, NB Media Co-op in the Yemen, more than 10 million people are at risk of starving. Another 10 million are food insecure. Saudi Arabia is, of course, blockading. Uh, the U.S. and Canada are helping there. But it is just something where... You know, all of these... America's already great. (laughs) All of these different billionaires, you get... If you just spend enough time doing research, like we spend maybe, what, three or four hours per billionaire researching somewhere in that neighborhood. Once you get about the third hour, you're like, oh, yeah, this person should be prosecuted at Nuremberg. And eventually you just, you follow the chain enough that you're like, yeah, that's their main customer. And of course, it should be noted, the Irving Oil Refinery, again, this is a privately held company, so we don't know for sure, but by all indication, Irving Oil Refinery is their main profit center. So these billionaires, the Irving family that control this province, they're doing it by uh, aiding and abetting and profiting from a Saudi genocide of uh, potentially 10 million people or more. So we'll see what happens. But I guess we've given you a lot of background here, so maybe we should just dive into the Irvings themselves, the actual family, the human beings that make these decisions. And um, they, uh, they wrote a history of New York under the name Knickerbocker. <laughs> um. So the Irving family fortune is unique. Uh, well, not unique, but it goes all the way back to the late 1800s. So this is like a negative self-made score out of 10. <laughs> this is like, yeah, fucking show up in the hospital and collect your annuities check. You know, I think it would still garner probably a five <laughs> yeah. on the Forbes rating system. Yeah, Forbes, if they're looking for an exclusive someone interview. Had to, someone had to be alive and breathing for the the bequeathment of those, those assets. So you have yeah, to actually they, be there to accept it. They had to pay someone to do a lot of paperwork. I signed the back of that check myself. That's right. That's like a three right yeah. there. Just off the bed. I learned to write. I learned to make an X, at least. <laughs> but so when we talk about the Irving family today, there's a lot of uh, descendants, let's say. But the two the two primary ones are Arthur and J.K. Irving. Uh, their third brother, Jack, died in 2010. Rest so, yeah, Arthur and J.K. are still alive. Um, I believe... Yeah, Forbes puts uh, J- um, Forbes puts JK at about 5.5 billion US dollars net worth as of August 2019. They put Arthur Irving at 3 billion net worth, so about an 8.5 billion dollar net worth for the family. So according to Forbes, the family fortune dates back to the 19th century when uh, the, the grandfather, uh, Arthur and uh, James Irving's grandfather, Uh, left Scotland and launched a general store and lumber and farming companies in uh, New Brunswick. So J.D. Irving was a prominent local businessman in Botouche, uh, which is a a city, a small town in New Brunswick. And he gives birth to his son, Casey Irving, in 1899. Uh, Casey Irving, for his part, uh, grows up pretty well off relative to everyone else. 
Uh, he tries to enlist for World War One, but his father prevents that by enrolling him at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. So around, you know, he's born 1899, uh, you know, around the time of World War One, he tries to go join the trenches, but his dad is like, no, that's that's for a different class of people <laughs> <laughs> to get poems written about them after making futile charges into machine gun nests for, just to maintain British imperial power. <laughs> uh, it's just like when you think about the absurdity of World War One, that's why Blackadder is so funny because it is just the most pointless mass slaughter in human history. It's also what makes Gallipoli hilarious. Yes, it's funny because a lot of people died for no reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you just give it a hundred years, uh, but so uh, Casey Irving uh, again, the uh, the father of the current Irvings, he's uh, he tries to enlist in World War One. Uh, his father enlists him and enrolls him in Acadia University, but he leaves Acadia before graduating. He then joins the Royal Flying Corps and trains as a pilot, uh, but the war ends before he sees action. But I, I'm sure he would have killed it over there. <laughs> uh, but so, regardless, the war ends, and then uh, Casey Irving starts to sell Ford automobiles around the age of 22. Uh, he Within two years, he's kind of dominant in what's called Southern Kent County, uh, and then he opens a gas station in 1924. He's initially franchising with Imperial Oil, but they dump him, so he has to contact an, o- an Oklahoma oil baron named Samuel Lloyd Noble. Uh, yeah. I just want to say something, that it's important that he was selling uh, Ford automobiles, because during this period of time, of course, you were required to also distribute copies of Henry Ford's newspaper, the Dearborn <laughs> Independent. So he was also publishing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, as well as selling Ford automobiles, right? So this is just a note that should be included. Uh, probably hated Jews. I'm, I'm just I'm just dwelling on the irony of the Irving family publishing a pamphlet about a uh, secretive clan that secretly controls a government. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, They're interfering with their ability to secretly control the government. Yeah. So, this would be a free market where everyone has a shot. <laughs> a clan that is also responsible for wars in the <laughs> Middle East. Uh, so, but yeah, so he's selling these Ford automobiles. He opens a gas station, his first gas station in 1924. Uh, we mentioned he's initially franchising with Imperial Oil. They dump him. He has to contact an Oklahoma oil baron named Samuel Lloyd Noble, get a, purchase a supply line from him. So he gets the gas from this Oklahoma oil baron and then sells it to Canadian consumers. 1925, he opens a second station. And this is just he gradually expands his gas station empire from there uh, to what would eventually today become Irving Oil. So, so basically he got in contact with... Um Essentially, one of the guys from, or essentially Daniel Day Lewis from There Will Be Blood, <laughs> and much like Pete Holmes, took the exact wrong lesson from that interaction. <laughs> but so then he's twenty six. Apparently, the Ford uh, a Ford representative invites him to take over the franchise, uh, a franchise for Ford in St. John. I drink uh, your syrup. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, St. John, New Brunswick, uh, he will move there to what we've talked about. St. John is like even more so than the rest of New Brunswick, a company town of the Irvings. But around 26 years old, he moves there. He takes over the Ford uh, franchise there. Uh, he also soon gets one in Halifax. Apparently, he gets the concession for all Ford tractors in all of the Maritimes, which the Maritimes is New Brun- the provinces of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Islands. So essentially, he's his early business is very much selling gas, but he's working directly with Ford, and he's their go-to guy for these provinces on the eastern seaboard side of Canada. And, uh, you know, it's a license to print money throughout the 20s. Every car he sells is only using Irving gasoline. So Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, he's, 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 he's double dipping here. <laughs> and that's like something that, as he expands his empire, something that we've, let's say, implied but haven't really gotten into yet is the vertical integration of the Irving empire, where they have all of these different businesses that buy Sean, from each other. They don't like the word empire. <laughs> they don't like the word empire. They prefer family business. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, We're all a family here in New Brunswick <laughs> as a whole. They're <laughs> <laughs> one very, very large family with a lot of dysfunction. They prefer to call it this thing of ours. Yeah. To join our family, we're going to uh, burn a picture of a saint in your hand. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but regardless, you know, in 1927, Casey Irving marries his childhood sweetheart, and this is where he gives birth to his children who currently run the empire. Uh, 1928, or family business. Uh, 1928, they give birth to James Kenneth Irving. Uh, 1930, Arthur Lee Irving. 1932, John Ern- Ernest Irving. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, John or Jack would uh, die in 2010. So currently the empire is split between James and Arthur Lee. And just according to CanadaBusiness.com, the driven and hard-driving Casey groomed his three sons, James, known as JK, Arthur, and Jack, to take over the business. They accompanied their their father to business meetings and on tours of mills and properties, earning the nicknames Oily, Greasy, and Gassy. (laughs) (laughs) I like like how the one um, who was named Gassy died first. I was about to ask. Yeah. It turns out this was a warning sign of serious <laughs> intestinal problems, and everyone just treated it like a joke. <laughs> um, but so... You got to take those seriously, man. That's that's what people think did Kurt Cobain in, too. So in 1929, Casey Irving forms Irving Gas and Oil, which is, again, to distribute this gas that he's initially getting from uh, the guy Noble, the uh, the Oklahoma oil man. Uh, he forms Haymarket Square service stations around the same time. But importantly, in... Um, uh, Starts selling Haymarket books. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they do the books. I don't think so. It's a uh, big conglomerate. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they make the trees for... Or they uh, grow softwood trees for paper. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then they, then they, then they, they sell... need to get it on leftist, on leftist publishers. Well, obviously, they sell anarchist books to make anarchists, which they can then put down with Irving Security Services. Yeah, no, this, this is my favorite Irving publication that I got uh, on the streets uh, the other day. It's the uh, Revolution Paper put out by the Revolutionary Communist Party USA, <laughs> run by Bob Avakian. <laughs> Is Bob Avakian and Irving? Yeah, we don't a, know. He's a contractor. Yeah. yeah he's, a, <laughs> he's part of the, quote, family. 
Look, if you're Irving li- is fart revolutionary communist. <laughs> you one of our theses on this. Look, if you're listening to this, you can stop the Irvings and their money-making activities by printing a book about them. Oh wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's all the strategy. Like, just get the criticism and then get journalists to write books and then fucking make money on both ends. As soon as we get to whatever billionaire owns SoundCloud, we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, you know, so he sets this up. Uh, he's By 1930, he's selling um, gas in St. John, um, uh, Sussex, Westville, just a bunch of different Canadian towns and provinces. In 1930, he sold 8 million gallons One of his average service stations sold 70,000 gallons. He employed about 212 people in St. John, 482 elsewhere. Uh, This is just from a biography of the man. Uh, But it it is just interesting where, again, you know, this is the year that the current billionaires were born, and he's already selling 8 million gallons of gas. So they didn't exactly have to work all that hard. (laughs) and then the other thing that happens around this time is uh, he takes over his father, Casey Irving takes over his father's sawmill company, uh, which is called J.D. Irving Limited. So JV, uh, J.D. Irving Limited is essentially the forestry side of it, where just to kind of explain how the company mostly works today, the sons, um, Arthur Irving, uh, the Living Sons, Arthur Irving manages Irving Oil. He owns outright Irving Oil and its subsidiaries. And then James Ir- Irving owns, um, or J.K. Irving, owns J.D. Irving Limited, which has forestry, all the forests, the shipbuilding, a lot of the transportation is there. So that's kind of the division. But it is just interesting where essentially he's makes his money in gas and then he uses it to buy his dad's sawmill. <laughs> so this is very old money we're dealing with here. What, what happened to the family haberdashery? <laughs> I, think he, I think that get, became part of J.D. Irving okay. Limited as well. All right. So he starts purchasing land around this time. He gains control of a wood veneer production firm in the mid-1930s. So the empire keeps growing and growing, and uh, one interesting anecdote from the 1940s is from either Ottawa or London, uh, Casey Irving gets the contract uh, to build wooden landing barges for D-Days. Um, he sets up the facility in Botouche, or for D-Day. Yeah. <laughs> for, they, were, they were planning on multiple, multiple ones, D- yeah. yeah. <laughs> originally, there were supposed to be 40 different D-Days. <laughs> They were built to fail, and like the last one succeeds. The the famously structurally sound landing barges in D Day. <laughs> he got the contract to uh, build uh, death traps for thousands of servicemen. <laughs> the door doesn't open. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be a nightmare. I'm just imagining being the fucking Canadian soldier in like a wooden craft and looking over and seeing a solid steel one <laughs> holding the Americans. <laughs> They like the engineers are sitting there and Irving walks in. Hey, could you make this uh, easier to capsize? <laughs> I think we should we could cut some costs right here. <laughs> yeah. We get rid of the bottom. I don't think we need that. Yeah. <laughs> Irving got this contract after walking into a meeting and insisting that his trees were thick enough to withstand MG42 bullets. <laughs> I had the best trees. I had the best trees in all of Canada. Could Use you, my trees. Could you put an arrow right on the door so that the uh, German machine gunners uh, can see where to shoot right before it opens up? There's a Brunswick News 
like desk right next when you get onto it right before you are loaded on to go to the the beach. (laughs) So we're worried our soldiers will be kind of afraid when they get to the beach and they might try to stay in the landing crafts. So if we could just make them flammable, then they would immediately run out of the landing crafts after they catch on fire. And what about morale? Oh, no, that's okay. We're going to hand out pamphlets that'll say, you'll survive in big, bold letters. Printed on Irving paper. (laughs) Printed on Irving paper. That's how you do it. Vertical integration. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Irving Irving hands out uh, Henry Ford's Dearborn newspaper to every soldier who uh, gets in one of the landing crafts. Why are so many of our soldiers defecting? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, uh, th- we're exposing it on this podcast where he was clearly an anti-Semite and this was all an op to help the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of... I mean, it's kind of funny, well, let's say fucked up, where, uh, I don't know, he gets this contract to build wooden landing crafts, Uh, he just so happens to have, you know, a sawmill and a wood veneer factory and all this other wood production facilities. Uh, That's who you go to. Right, when steel would clearly be a much better option. This is a big big con by big wood. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I mean, uh, I guess people don't talk as much about World War II, of course. You know, we all recognize it as the good war, but every war is horrible. But uh, there was a lot of money-making opportunities in the Western Hemisphere for World War II. But so, just kind of like skipping ahead, in 1963, uh, by 1963, he set up the Irving Oil Refinery. Uh, in 1960... Um, the uh, in 1963, there's a strike at the Irving Oil Refinery. Uh, the uh, the St. John workers uh, walk out. Irving secured at this time, 1963. Casey Irving secures a court injunction against pickets at gas stations and other secondary pickets because the the strikers were saying, you know, don't buy Irving gasoline. Um, the uh, on one march through downtown St. John, refinery workers burned Casey Irving in effigy <laughs> in 1963. It's uh, a sign of affection back then yeah. in Canada. And so this this strike actually within Canada became a national issue at the Concerned time. Concerned liberals were pointing out that it was Irving gas that they used for burning him. I think burning you in effigy is a very warm gesture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. He fucking all see that's the thing, is like once these companies are so integrated, they always make money on both to, both ends. You write a book about them, they make money. You oh, burn supplying. them in, Antifa was one of their main clients. <laughs> yeah. You burn them in effigy, they make money. Uh, regardless, you know, he hires scabs, but eventually uh, this becomes a national issue in, in Canada. So there is a settlement in March 63. Irving conceded wage increases, uh, masquerading as, quote, merit pay. Uh, but a judge did make the union pay Irving $2,000 for damaging his reputation. <laughs> <laughs> but it is just like... The union lawyers tried to argue that that wasn't, that wasn't possible. <laughs> But it is, you know, I mean, it's it's illustrative where uh, we don't have all the information about, you know, his early days. But 
It is just incredible where by 1970, there's already a federal government investigation. It's called the Davy Report and the Davy Committee. In 1970, the Canadian federal government looks into Irving control of the province of New Brunswick. There's uh, and this, there have been three federal investigations: uh, the Davy Report and Committee in 1970, the Kent Commission in 1981, and most recently another Senate report in 2006. All of them looking into the fact that the Irvings completely controlled all of the media in New Brunswick. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know. I mean, it is like, this is why people... Sean, I would ask you to please not use anti-Semitic tropes when referring to the Irvings. <laughs> <laughs> what in the, in the court case was like, Exhibit 1, literally the thing we're here trying to tell you of. <laughs> it just shows the structure of Brunswick News. But it's like... I don't know. I mean, people talk about, let's say, the power of the federal government or the terrifying overreach of federal government. It's just kind of amusing to think about the fact that the Canadian federal government, or at least parts of it, have been writing these fucking reports for like 50 years now, and nothing has changed. Oh, yeah, it's not so good, eh? (laughs) We think you should maybe uh, sell some of these newspapers, eh? (laughs) Anyway, we'll let you get on with it. Uh, Uh, Excuse me. Nothing happens. Uh, I know you're doing this investigation, but how would you like uh, five American dollars? Uh so also around this time, so Casey Irving, when he's 26, moves to St. John, but then in 1972 he uh innovates, as many billionaires do, a uh a unique strategy where he no longer lives in St. John. He simply visits it 6 months minus 1 day out of the year. Uh, He starts doing this from 1972 to his death in 1992. And this is because in 1972, he moves ownership of basically every single part of his business empire into a series of trusts in Bermuda that have, according to Huffington Post, never paid taxes to Canada. (laughs) So they've managed to keep this going since 1972. And, um, you know, you can also read articles about how, like, if you go through St. John, like almost all of the property there is owned by trusts located in Bermuda. So like they've structured their entire company to be based out of Bermuda and the Canadian federal government has still not managed to get around to fixing this basic exploit of tax laws for again, coming up on 50 years. It's so he, he was there six months minus one day, which is clearly Mm -hmm. engineered to avoid these tax laws. But I can just imagine when he's coming up on that minus one day, just getting terrible diarrhea (laughs) and just having to fight it as he gets on his airplane. (laughs) I'll be in the back. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) I'm going to go a bit Pan Am on here. Well, you know, when you make toilet paper, diarrhea is a profit making opportunity. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what they their fucking service stations are all meant to give people diarrhea so they can make money on the other end too. The food there is not good. I wouldn't the, imagine the coffee so. is not very good. Um overall I would not rate it a high gas station convenience store uh experience. And uh, St. John's? St. John? Uh in in Irving gas stations. In Irving oh in general. Uh, in general, yeah. Okay. It's funny, there's like a CBC video from, I think, 1998, I believe it's CBC, that the Irvings cooperated with. I watched some of it, it was kind of whatever, but the point is, uh, 
they always have this this mythos or, or propaganda or whatever you want to call it about how they're like all of the family is so attuned to detail that they're like testing the coffee and the small service stations to make sure it's the most perfect roast or brand. Or they're telling stories about like Casey Irving, like at midnight realized he hadn't delivered salt to a customer, even though there was a snowstorm. So he went out and got it done instead of waiting for the morning and just all this other kind of bullshit. I mean, you can just throw the salt in front of the vehicle and it melts the snow. It's like really, it's not impressive. <laughs> Um, let's see. They're testing the coffee to make sure it's just the right amount of watery wateriness yeah. and uh, yeah, taste, tasteless. Mmm, tastes like nothing. tastes like burnt paper, watery burnt paper. It's perfect. I had one of the uh, I had one of the breakfast sandwiches when I was in Newfoundland from a uh, Irving gas station, and it was gross, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did one? the job, but it was it was not good. <laughs> What's there? They have a Canadian competitor that's pretty big, actually, for coffee and breakfast stuff. Tim Hortons. Oh, Tim oh, Hortons. Timmy's, yeah. yeah. They pulled out of Penn Station, which is where they're, I would always get it. They're Canadian? Stuff from. Yeah, Tim Hortons Canadian. Oh, yeah. I guess with the name Tim Horton, that shouldn't yeah. be surprising. Tim Horton should advertise by saying, now without any roundup in the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm excited for the Irving commercial, like advertising their clean roundup <laughs> program. <laughs> but I guess like uh, what I wanted to illustrate here is by the 70s, at the absolute latest, the Irving family controlled New Brunswick to the point where it was and still is a company town. And so you can just kind of go through that where we've talked about... Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned it on this episode yet, they're kind of the opposite of a multinational, where yeah. the entire idea is if you just control everything within one province or one area, you can, uh, again, have your suppliers. Uh, your suppliers are all owned by the Irvings. They sell you know, their trees that they clear cut. They sell to their sawmills, to their paper mills. Uh, they transport it on Irving uh, trains. Uh, or Irving Shipping. I guess you know. the one exception with that is their their forestry holdings in Maine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they they do a fair amount of trade with the U.S. Yeah. But as far as their they're not a multinational for sure, with respect to the structure of their company. Right. Even though they have like two hundred subsidiaries, like you said, they're yeah. just all accordioned into larger divisions. They're all in, uh, you know, New Brunswick. Right. And it's interesting where like, yeah. And so again, you know, they have their oil refinery, they sell that their gas stations, you know, they use that oil to fuel their uh, fleet of trucks for logistics, you know, or in the lumber side, they have the home building, they have Kent, which is like their own uh, Home Depot in Canada. I don't know if they have US locations yeah. as well. But um, I mean, but you're, you're coming down on them controlling all of New Brunswick, but in their defense, uh, Irving script, is has a <laughs> has a better exchange rate with the dollar than it's the Canadian the, dollar. It's probably one of the best performing currencies in the world. So <laughs> especially in Canada. Yeah. But so somebody else, I, I think it was actually a Reddit user pointed this out, is the fact that this is all privately held and this is all vertically integrated, so they sell to each other. This actually makes it very advantageous for all their tax sheltering and their Bermuda trusts. 
because, you know, if you're selling from one division to another, you don't have to accurately report, say, profits or costs or whatever. It just gives you another way to do little shady accounting where you can move all of this money offshore. And I've been trying to look for it. I can't find it. But maybe a few of their subsidiaries are possibly publicly listed. Right. I don't know. I found one of those Irving, Irving Resources, Inc., which mm-hmm. I wasn't sure was related to their Home Depot type group. We should we should buy one share and show up to the public stock mating and be like, so why were the landing crafts made out of wood anyways? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't really get that. I don't think wood stops machine gun bullets. And we yeah. thought the shelling was going to take care of the nests. <laughs> <laughs> they stupidly incorporated as a workers' co-op during the seventies. They were <laughs> to wo- shut the hippies up. The, they, were, they were wooden shells. <laughs> <laughs> the the first cut of uh, Saving Private Ryan portrayed the Irving Beach landing, but they had to they had to scrap it because the audience kept throwing up. <laughs> so many splinters <laughs> shoot shoot through the front of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> they use softwood that they would normally use for like their like paper mulch or whatever. It's, it's like, actually a paper boat <laughs> <laughs> folded out it's of Irving newspapers. Yeah. The soldiers just went after it. It's fucking paper. It's like it's like the scene everyone knows from Saving Private Ryan, where the landing craft arrives and then the door comes down and everybody gets machine gun, but the door is still up. <laughs> still, so the door just starts Nazis bouncing off the water. Yeah. <laughs> it's a jump celebration of the Nazis, like still, they they built it out of fucking paper. And then, like the soldiers that do get out, drown because the Irvings got a contract to outfit them with clogs. <laughs> Look, do you do you know how many one-on-one meetings he had to have in Ottawa? Sorry, I'm just thinking. Uh, there's an anarchist bookstore in Philly called Wooden Shoe Books, huh. which I realize now must also be owned by the <laughs> Yeah, they're in on you. Uh, but so you know, and so obviously, when you have, let's say, 200 more than 200 different subsidiaries, just every single area of the province of New Brunswick uh, and also some other neighboring provinces as well as the a lot in the U.S. state of Maine. There's always going to be too much to cover, but I think what we wanted to get through, and hopefully we did, is that by the 70s at the absolute latest, they were a monopoly power, and it's, again, a license to print money, and especially when, as we've mentioned here, they control the government of New Brunswick, and, you know, according to Lamond, uh, uh, one expert says it's basically impossible to get elected in New Brunswick if you're a direct opponent of the Irvings. Like, you can be neutral on them, you can not say anything, but if you're actually going to criticize them, like, you're dead to rights. So, again, they own all three major daily English papers, all this stuff that we've hopefully hammered into the ground by now. So I just kind of wanted to talk about some some greatest hits that have happened with the family uh, since then, because this Irving oil refinery, again, the largest oil refinery in Canada... Uh, In 1994, there was a strike. The workers went on strike, and the Irvings uh, very viciously managed to break the strike by 1996. Um, And this is just just a a, a roundup of it from the uh, Dominion paper uh, in 2003. 
They say, uh, when the 27-month strike at Irving Oil concluded in 1996 with a humiliating defeat for the union, the company required a process of ideological re-education, which was essentially a means for the company to control the hearts and minds of its now-broken labor force. Refinery workers spent two weeks at a local hotel with facilitators from an American consulting firm where they were required to go through a reorientation agenda, which included, quote, venting emotions, quote, problem people and a participation in a quote public declaration oh, they say please. america doesn't export anything anymore please let it be mckinsey <laughs> I, I like they just so they awesome. just made a corporate gulag <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like the daily the daily hate yeah. go just... to gulag eh <laughs> <laughs> just imagining like this public declaration just making that and then going home and watching some documentary on North Korea and being like, they're so brainwashed over there. <laughs> <laughs> Having to pledge fealty to some sort of God that controls whether or not they live or die. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. And just continuing from this article, successful completion of the first week of this program was a pre- prerequisite to being, quote, invited to week two. If you weren't, you were, of course, fired, which involved, quote, team building exercises for union members and their former colleagues who crossed the picket lines, as well as replacement workers who had been kept on. Week two, in turn, was followed by a practical test at the refinery lasting up to four weeks. Workers were assessed every day and did not get full pay until they passed the entire program. Uh, and uh, according to old Domi uh, the Dominion paper, uh, returning workers at the refinery said the reorientation program was, quote, a bitterness test and a attitude alteration exercise. Uh, workers were told that they were misled by their local union and to doubt the credibility of executives of their national union. Um, and, you know, it was essentially called by the workers a brainwashing exercise. But... If you happen to read the papers in New Brunswick, you would not hear any of that. <laughs> Uh, the New Brunswick papers published the names of 37 striking workers who were fired by the company under the headline, Not Welcome at the Refinery. The reorientation itself was described as a, quote, back-to-work program that was a, quote, tough transition for the men who, quote, failed and were told to go home. But it is just something where, you know, the New Brunswick government at the time also the New Brunswick government at the time also had made a bunch of loans to Irving businesses, unsurprisingly. You know, they get all sorts of tax credits and loans and these sorts of things. So they could have, if they were not a captured government, threatened to uh, call in those loans if they hadn't, uh, you know, uh, been completely captured and owned by them. But instead, they have to go through this kind of, um, uh, let's say, brainwashing exercise. And, you know, that sounds really similar to union busting activities that, like Boeing would do. Mm -hmm. I don't understand where the government's getting the money to loan to them because <laughs> all their money, like Irving doesn't pay taxes. So and it's like all of the New Brunswick economy. Mm -hmm. So where's the New Brunswick government get the money to loan to Irving? The workers? I guess so. I guess the workers are still taxed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they yeah they employ what thirty five hundred employees for that one small town. Uh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And so you know the it's, it's interesting how like in the seventies there is that outbreak of cults, um, and kind of mass panic and the takeaway seemed to be that like oh you shouldn't join a cult but in the corporate world the takeaway seemed to be oh they've got some good strategies here. We should run a cult. Yeah. <laughs> Don't join a cult. Start one. Yeah. <laughs> That's some good management. Yeah. 
And, you know, so this uh, Dominion paper article just kind of goes through a bunch of different examples of bias, unsurprisingly. Irving Papers, the three daily English papers in New Brunswick, are all very hostile to labor. Uh, There was a strike of community college and prison custodians who were walking the picket lines. Uh, All three papers ran editorials within several days of each other using terms such as irrational, unreasonable, ludicrous, and greedy to describe the striking workers. You know, and so they always portray labor as the uh, instigating party, Um, you know, and and there's like another example in uh, 2002, Irving Loggers did a walk off over a 30 percent wage cut. Uh, Readers of the supposed to call them Italians. (laughs) Readers of the Irving papers in St. John and uh, Fredericton didn't get any coverage of the strike at all, and those in Fredericton read the headline, Mill Workers Walked Out. Uh, they learned that the workers earned up to sixteen thirty-five an hour and were told that the issue of contention was stalled contract negotiations, unquote. So basically, the coverage of this did not mention a 30% wage cut at all. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, th- this kind of blatant again and again stuff where clearly their media ownership and their business interests intertwine. And it's just in, and the fact is, you know, we mentioned Canadian national media coverage is sometimes critical of them, but it is a local issue. So a lot of, a lot of this stuff just doesn't get covered by national media until say an oil refinery explodes or something like that, you know? So it just kind of gets swept under the rug and they're just not exposed to, um, uh, investigative journalism or a a hostile press at all i think the proper term for that is in case an oil refinery has a a miracle yes (laughs) there's a miracle i guess like the international press ended up covering once several uh, refinery explosions occurred like le monde picked them up like the article that you were reading right i think like those the workers that ended up striking at those plants like this just like underscores the need for more proletarian internationalism i think yes if you're in, if you're in a province which is like effectively captured by this company um and you have a political system that's also dysfunctional you know basically social do do more proletarian socialism and you know there was like another former irving employee who um he tried to set up a paper to compete with the irving papers so they just completely undercut him on price <laughs> because of course they can do that and gave you know free giveaways uh cut their advertising rates to rock bottom so why would anybody advertise with their competitors you know so it's like they just have the ability to even take these papers as loss leaders the way billionaires do in a lot of different cases just to have it be a propaganda empire I know from folks I talked to in New Brunswick uh, mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, Irving bought a lot of the uh, a lot of uh, Irving bought the railroad that went from St. John into Maine. Right. Mm-hmm. And they cut all the passenger service and then they uh, started that back up with Irving buses at some point. <laughs> and those uh, which ran on Irving gasoline. Of course. Of course. And those buses are now also gone. Um, and I think Irving somehow was instrumental in getting new brunswick route one built which is this absurd uh four-lane highway with no cars on it which basically serves to get irving trucks into maine uh and they like maybe use some irving concrete they'd probably use irving asphalt yeah <laughs> now there's one thing i i wanted to clear up since you have an engineering background um and we mentioned this before we started recording 
Uh, you agree with me that refineries are mostly pipes. <laughs> they right. are mostly pipes. There are a lot of pipes in refineries, yes. All right. But they and also have tanks um, and other equipment. So in conclusion, I was right, and they yeah. shouldn't. Have, the other host shouldn't have made fun of me. Yeah, yeah, they need pipes. You need pipes to make a refinery. Yeah. Takes all That's pipes the... to make a refinery. <laughs> is a tank a pipe? I mean, come a on. A tank is sort of like a fat pipe. Yes. Yeah, fat yeah. short pipe. Yeah. Okay. They also have vats. Yeah. Well, a vat is just a tank with no roof. <laughs> uh, we are learning so much about storage <laughs> containers. Some some of the pipes have higher pressure. Some have lower pressure. This is true. You do need different yeah. types of tanks. And Sometimes uh, you need a big sphere. Right. Yeah. That's what's called a There's circle a lot pipe. Of points of potential failure yes going from higher to lower pressures it's true yeah you might have a, a, a heat exchanger explodes or like hydrocarbon cracker catches fire but the flare stack catches fire the flare stack's supposed to be on fire um <laughs> <laughs> so i know we've gone a little long here but there are a few other things i want to get to just to hammer this point into the absolute ground neil reynolds was a editor at the telegraph journal and irving paper he left in 1995 he told reporters that the owner james irving called him every day telling him what he liked and did not like in the paper uh, so, you know, again, this is a very much captured papers if you don't get this by now. Uh, and then Irving Oil and uh, Irving subsidiaries are like horrific environmental polluters. You know, in 1970, an Irving oil barge named the Irving Whale sank in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence. It caused periodic oil spills until the federal government raised it in 1996. Uh, in 2007, the Irving Pulp and Paper uh, Mill uh, in uh, Reversing Falls uh, released 680,000 liters of green liquid into the St. John River. Uh, the company received a fine of $50,000. That's just so green engineering. They do that company. in Chicago yeah. every year. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, the Irving Oil Refinery, we've we've mentioned this a lot. I was I was wrong earlier. It makes over three hundred thousand barrels of oil a day, three hundred twenty thousand barrels of of refined oil per day. But um, what I wanted to mention here is just let's say the safety thing because we've kind of got to that or we've mentioned it a fair amount. Uh, there's there was a reddit user who says quote i work at the irving refinery in st john new brunswick the place is a complete dump i'm surprised the place hasn't had more explosions than it did which is like at least and sean says essentially too much <laughs> uh, at least two in the last two years uh also the amount of hazardous chemicals and waste that gets seeped into the ground is unbelievable uh, in July 2013, a train carrying crude uh, from the Bakken Formation in North Dakota destined for the Irving Refinery derailed in Quebec, causing an explosion in the town center and killing 47 people. Uh, there was another train derailment carrying crude to the Irving facility in 2014. Uh, it had injuries, forced 150 people to evacuate, created a fireball, but did not kill anybody. But it is... Miracle. Yeah. Not a is, miracle. Yeah. A child is born unto us. <laughs> <laughs> the Vatican is currently considering it for uh, beautification. But yes. it is... Yeah. I mean, it is just something where, very clearly, they're uh, not up to safety standards because they own the local government that might be auditing their safety standards. And it's just... 
I mean, it's horrifying to say, but it is probably just a matter of time before there's like a giant fucking three megaton explosion at the refinery. Um, but I guess the last thing I wanted to mention about the Irvings is uh, glyphosate, glyphosate, which we mentioned at this top here is essentially what's found in Roundup. There was recently the multi-billion dollar jury award in California for the, the guys who got cancer from using Roundup. Uh, so essentially... Damn it. (laughs) So in summary, uh, there's an article in the National Observer. Uh, So Rod... This is a new page for Grubstakers. Rod Cumberland was a uh, professor at the Maritime College of Forest Technology in New Brunswick. And uh, he was fired for helping galvanize, according to the National Observer, he was trying to galvanize the growing opposition to glyphosate spraying in New Brunswick. Um they actually, the Irvings managed to, according to this, in since at least 2014, J.D. Irving and other forest companies, along with provincial and federal government officials, have tried to discredit Cumberland, the professor. In 2014, for example, J.D. Irving issued a strong at wor- strongly worded letter from the company's chief wildlife biologist focusing on Cumberland and his research. Uh Basically, the most recent attacks on forest management in New Brunswick by Rod Cumberland are irresponsible and are not supported by current data and scientific research, Gilbert wrote in a letter posted on the company's website. Uh, so basically, they've got the local government attacking this scientist looking into how dangerous uh, glyphosate <laughs> is. And uh, they managed in 2019 to get him fired. And uh, this is also comes after 2015... So Dr. Elish Cleary was, according to CBC, New Brunswick's chief medical officer of health. She was working on a study on, of the herbicide glyphosate uh, when she was put on leave in 2015 and later fired in December 2015. <laughs> so the chief medical officer of New Brunswick was fired for looking into this herbicide that the Irvings are spraying all over the place back in 2015 and trying to figure out if it causes cancer. So, I mean, it is just something where... You know, you can take your pick of what the most horrifying part of this is, uh, whether it's, you know, the Saudi genocide profiting or the uh, fact that they're spraying glyphosate all over New Brunswick and Maine and uh, giving the province the second highest new cancer rate in all of Canada and uh, getting government officials and professors who look into this fired and just completely dominating the media and preventing this story from being looked into. Uh, But yeah, I mean... Look, this is this is what feudalism is. Feudal- say the new cancer because cancer classic was. I will be cutting that joke. I, I prefer crystal cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Vanilla cancer. Cancer cherry. Yeah. <laughs> cancer zero. It's it's pretty desperate how they have vanilla cancer cherry zero now. You know, cancer used to be made with cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> I should go back to that. But, you know, I mean, it is just something where we have, I guess, in this Canadian province, let's say um, feudalism with Medicare for all characteristics. (laughs) Is that a fair description? I mean... You know, and it is like, and I see, Justin, why you were so fascinated by these people and just you, you told us you drove up through New Brunswick and you kind of saw all the gas stations and convenience stores all owned by this one family. So it is like, 
it's a throwback Thursday. You get to drive through and see the local <laughs> lord of the manor who runs the company town and employs, you know, mm -hmm. a quarter of the population, and then the, that money f feeds the rest of the population and has runs the co company newspaper and everything else. And thankfully, yeah. you didn't have to undergo the debasing experience of taking a train yeah, through New Brunswick. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I never have to take a train to New Brunswick because they don't exist. Thank you, Irving. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, the first time I knew something was up, because I thought it was just a gas station. Then we got to Halifax, and uh, there's this big building that said Irving Shipbuilding. I was like, oh, <laughs> something's up. <laughs> they own a lot of stuff, don't they? <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what uh, Arthur Irving and James Irving, the two surviving, they've kind of passed some. They've got their children, un unsurprisingly, coming into the business as well. So, you know, they're in their 80s uh, or 90s. And so we'll see what happens with these companies. Uh, you know, the Irvings will transfer them to their kids. You know, maybe something horrible will happen. And finally, the Canadian federal government will do something about this. But I guess one last thing to keep an eye on is, according to Lamont, they're, uh, they've already got, again, sixth largest landowner in the United States. They have a big presence in Maine, but they are expanding into the government. According to LeMond, with the support of Canadian authorities, the Irvings managed to overturn a referendum vote to ban clear-cutting in Maine, and they have defeated proposed legislation on the publication of accounts. <laughs> so the Maine local government tried to get uh, more public information on the accounts of, uh, of such companies. They're also apparently trying, they have their eyes on the gold and copper deposits of Bald Mountain in Maine, and... Uh, uh, ecologists are concerned that mining operations could contaminate the environment with sulfuric acid and arsenic. So drop, drop night on Bald Mountain here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so we'll see if uh, they manage to succeed into turn into turning the state of Maine into the Irving's quote new colony, as so many think that they might they might manage to do. What sectors haven't they gotten into? Like private prisons. That's probably next on their agenda. Uh, they don't have those in Canada. Camps. Well, I, I think. Really? Maybe they do. I don't Not know. Not yet. Yeah. yeah they figure it out, yeah. Yeah. That's that's their next project. Their next venture is to get into the sector of Maine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting into the Maine sector. What are Maine holdings doing? Yeah. I, I can't wait to, to drive up to Maine and some enjoy some local, organically sourced Roundup with my coffee. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Now that we've recorded this podcast, next time any of us go to Canada, we'll get detained at the border. Yeah. And the Irving guards are going to come out and say, uh, you're not a welcome here. Confiscate your passports and then send you back to the United States. We won't let you in. I'm going to uh, say it's probably safe to assume that the Irvings are responsible for the remake of It without Tim Curry. Probably their biggest travesty. Um. But I guess, uh, Justin, was there anything we didn't get to? Any uh, stories or uh, other uh, information? I know we, w we went a little long here, but thank yeah. you so much for being with us. Oh, no yeah. problem. I think if we learned anything from this uh, uh, venture into the world of the Irvings is that conflicts of interest aren't real. <laughs> um, the more you do, the less they matter. Um, and basically, you know, just, you know, buy all the newspapers and no one will report on you. 
And trust uh, the system. Trust right. the system, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way the Irvings always describe it is they've managed to survive by just being better than all the other competitors, <laughs> all these massive multinationals they compete with. And it's like the actual reality is, and it's a pretty fascinating one that, that they we are better. <laughs> it's a fascinating kind of turn on the story that we haven't really looked at yet in this podcast is there is a way to become a billionaire by just dominating a local area. If you just control everything in a local area, you don't have to be a multinational. You don't have to have your tentacles in every corner of the world. You just have to be the person where it's like, you cannot step foot in New Brunswick uh, or we will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like that, they're they're the fucking legalized mafia of New Brunswick, Canada, and everybody who wants to like do there's no such thing as a mafia. <laughs> everybody who wants to do capitalism in New Brunswick has to deal with the Irving family. Um, and, and so, and and thank you for bringing them to our attention, Justin. This is a very interesting uh, trip. And I guess, um, is there uh, well, advertise your YouTube channel or where can people find you? Is what I wanted to ask you here. You can find me on the Twitter at do not eat zero one. You can find me on the YouTube, also at Do Not Eat Zero One. You can watch me drone on about urban planning and politics and land use and all other kinds of fun stuff uh, on my YouTube uh, it's, and make some funnies. Um, and I think that's my pitch. Mm-hmm. You can also donate to my Patreon. Or you could donate to the Grubstakers Patreon and get extra episodes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can donate to both. It's yeah, it's uh, very they're both very affordable. Yes. I think. In post, we're gonna cut the part where you said donate to your Patreon. <laughs> 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 Just leave ours. Yeah. Um. And uh, that's what we learned from the Irvings. Yeah. It's a good point. One way flow of information. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, thank you for, uh, and I'm sorry, one last time, any other things we didn't get to, or did we cover all of it? Uh, let me think. Um, as you go further North, the bathrooms in the Irvings don't, aren't as good. <laughs> that's like their main, that's like one of their main things As I say, our bathrooms are very clean, but once you start getting into like Cape Breton or Newfoundland, it's oh, kind of like, well, commode. yeah, it's like, this is not, this is not so nice anymore. <laughs> the Irvings took the idea of that. Canadian money looks like monopoly money to a whole new level. They did. They bought all four railroads. <laughs> uh, they bought the utility companies um, and they put a piece of paper over the luxury tax spot. <laughs> <laughs> but that's their old promise is like their bathrooms are beautiful yes. in Irving's companies. It's like, look, the bathrooms look like garbage, but they have the most beautiful wooden doors. <laughs> Just We took them off the landing craft, so try to ignore those MG42 bullet holes in the front of them. Just like the size of a fist so people can see you shitting. All red. It's, red doors. Yeah. It's an accent. Yeah. Look, we didn't want to clean the doors, so we're just going to have to paint them red, okay? You have no idea how hard it is to get blood out of wood. <laughs> thank you so much to our guest uh, Justin also known as do not eat on YouTube uh, Twitter as mentioned we'll have the links in the description uh, check us out by the end of this week we'll have a Patreon episode of Glenn and Eva Dubin uh, and their connections to Jeffrey Epstein uh, thanks so much for listening and again hit us up as always if uh, I know there were things that we didn't get to with the Irving so hit us up maybe we'll follow up with some of the children and other stuff in future uh, I'm Sean McCarthy thanks for listening rest in peace Gassy.